Well, welcome to another Care Home Management Magazine podcast. Uh, Today we are looking at employment, which obviously is a very important issue for care homes as they battle recruitment and retention challenges. Uh, Our expert panel today will share insights and top tips and advice on how to improve employment and staff engagement in your care home. Uh, My name is Steve Hemsley. I'm the publishing editor at Care Home Management Magazine. And this podcast is uh, kindly sponsored by Cass Recruitment, a world-class company that's been providing third country recruitment from the Philippines uh, for more than 20 years across multiple sectors including healthcare, engineering, food production and construction, connecting people for a better tomorrow. So thank you to Cass Recruitment for sponsoring this podcast. Uh, Right, okay, so who do we have on our panel today? Let me introduce our experts. We have Dee Newton, who's Operations and HR Business Manager at Craven Consultancy Services. We have uh, Dr. Charles Armitage, who is CEO at Florence. And we have Samir Nazarali, who is um, founder and CEO at Simplify ER. Welcome to everyone. Uh, right, we always like to uh, let our listeners know a little bit more about who is on the panel. So perhaps you could spend just uh, 30 seconds introducing yourselves. Uh, Dee, let's uh, start with you. Yeah, I'm Dee Newton. Um, I've got 20 plus years in HR management, people management, various sectors, including health and social care. My passions are continuous improvement business transformation and health and well-being. Samir, maybe you could tell people a bit about yourself. Hi, Steve. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, uh, I'm, I, I'm the founder of um, a company called Simplify ER. So my background is um, that I'm an employment lawyer. Um, I've been in the HR employment law field for coming up to 19 years now. And in the last 10 years, I formed my own consultancy. And the idea was to support businesses bring HR and employment law alive for them to help them engage better with their workforces. And and our mission is, you know, really to help that people agenda be at the forefront of business minds and help that workplace be very connected in its sort of uh, overall purpose. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you've also got the the compliance side, which is always in care around HR, as well as the well-being side, which I know we're going to talk about later. Thank you very much. And Charles. Hello, everyone. Pleasure to be here. My name's Charles. I'm the co-founder of a company called uh, Florence. Um, what we do is we build technology. We have an app that connects healthcare organisations to care professionals across uh, the UK and now Europe um, and helps healthcare and care organisations fill their vacant shifts. We also have a learning and development platform called Florence Academy where we aim to bring more people into the care sector and help them upskill throughout their care careers. Brilliant. Thank you, Charles. Excellent. I'd like to start with you, actually, with the sort of uh, conversation, because obviously underpinning all of this, when we talk about employment, it's quite a broad sort of topic. We all know about the understaffing, high vacancy levels, training, whatever it might be. What impact does this have on care generally? And are you are you seeing any sort of improvement, do you think? There's always initiatives, aren't there, uh, Charles, to try and uh, tackle employment issues? I mean, from broadly, where do you come, uh, what, what sort of direction do you come at this from? I mean, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty well-worn topic, the recruitment and retention crisis and challenges that exist within social care. And, you know, the long-term trends are due to get worse rather than get better. We've got more people living longer with increasing care needs and ultimately you end up being a bit of a victim of your own success in healthcare and that the better you are at looking after people the more people you have to look after and I think for a very long time now we as a country have 
not really woken up to the long-term increasing requirement for building, uh, upskilling the, the care workforce. And we're at a point today where around about 10% of all care roles remain long-term vacant, actually a bit more than that. And that has ultimately a, an effect on care providers being unable to provide their services, has an impact on the workforce who, who end up working in really challenging environments, and it has an impact on residents and patients who often can receive substandard care because of challenges around staffing. And we did a piece of research recently at Florence where we looked at some of these challenges facing the workforce and found some really stark results. So nine out of 10 of the care social care workers, professionals that we spoke to said that chronic staff shortages are affecting the quality of care. And three quarters of those people said it was severely affecting the quality of care. So we're at a point now, I think, where we really need to stand and wake up to some of the challenges the sector is facing and um, think about how we can build that workforce for the future, not just for papering over the cracks today. Right. So how, what would your sort of, uh, obviously it's a long-term issue, what would you think mm. be a short-term solution or just an ongoing solution? What should care hosts listening, what can they do now maybe to sort of wake up to this, as you say? I think it's, I mean, I think it's, before we get quite to the care, the care home point, I think society and government and policymakers have to be, have to kind of start, start the conversation. So what is the core driver of challenges of recruitment and retention in the care sector? Uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, it's money and pay and as much as we want to talk about things like improving professional development improving training and improving well-being of the workforce if you don't have the underlying infrastructure where people feel like they're getting paid fairly and are recognized for the work they're doing it's very very hard to build those other initiatives and if me as a care worker who's doing a really skilled and difficult job can pop down the road to Lidl or Tesco and earn a higher hourly rate care providers, care organizations are going to have a really challenging time to recruit and retain that workforce. So number one is we need to improve pay of the workforce. Now, that's obviously easier said than done. And a lot of care providers, especially ones that rely heavily on um, local authority funding, are often unable to shift uh, wages in the way that they need to, to be shifted. So from a society and policymaking wide position, we need to ensure that there's more funding into the sector that can be delivered straight to the frontline workforce. Mm. And, and, and as far as sort of Florence is concerned, I mean, with what you do, how, how can you help sort of care homes, I suppose, to move in the right direction here? Well, we, I mean, we do two things. Our, our app helps care organisations fill their shift vacancies. And they can either do that through connecting to our own pool of nurses and care workers on, on the app or their own pool of staff. So they can put all their own staff into their ecosystem. And if they have shifts that need to be filled, they can publish them out to their own perm or bank staff. What we see when people use that is much better engagement with their workforce, and especially in a cost of living crisis where frontline workers are trying to earn as much money as they can to deal with you know, rising prices in their basic cost of living. Having an efficient way to deliver shifts to them really helps with retention within, within that workforce. Okay, thank you. Uh, Zemir, I wanted to bring you in here. I saw you sort of nodding along to some of the things that Charles was saying there. I mean, there's two, there's different elements, aren't there? There's the impact on care, care delivery and the care business. And then it's obviously, what are the key areas? Is it more about recruitment issues or is it retention issues? Pay obviously goes across both of those. Uh, what do you think about what Charles has been saying there? 
totally resonates, which is why I was nodding along. I think, um, unfortunately, um, we're now seeing the massive divide and the massive challenges that are facing the care workforce. And I think they've been coming, but obviously it's been accelerated with, with everything that's gone on in the last three to four years. Um, and I, I think one of the key uh, sort of issues that maybe should should have been addressed by sort of leaders or owners within that sector is creating that leadership mindset. I think that probably has been where the disconnect starts. Um, and obviously I'm not, I'm not you know, painting a brush across all the care homeowners, but just as, as, as a sort of sector, if you see that there is a large influx of entrepreneurs who go into the sector, not necessarily connected with care, but they see it as a good return on investment. And obviously they're, they're putting in good structures and hoping that it runs itself with, with minimal fuss. I think the problem there then comes about where the leadership direction is not necessarily aligned with the workforce direction. So I think with the care workforce, generally speaking, you have um, you have a worker with a profile of serving and caring. Of course, it's, it's in the name. Um, and, and they're there with a purpose that they're coming to. They're bringing that purpose to the table and where you don't have an alignment on the leadership side and where those uh, objectives are slightly different. They're financially driven and obviously there is pressure at the top, so we, we can't ignore that. But I think that's where the disconnect starts. And, and I think that's where the solution also starts is having that leadership mindset to understand the workforce you're working with, what are their motivations, and then you can start bridging the gap in terms of you know rewards, benefits, and, and uh, as Charles rightly pointed out, uh, the pay issue. Obviously, the, the clear issues are the retention side, the recruitment side. Retention, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a little, in a little bit, would, would be all down to the way you engage with your staff and you know, how valued you make them feel and how safe you make them feel in your workplace. Um, but on the recruitment side, I, I always talk about care needing to build that brand of care. And, you know, there's a very traditional or, shall we say, archetypical type of worker that we try to attract into the industry. But like you said, we need to think outside the box as leaders within the industry and transfer skills within and sort of also personality types as well. Mm. So I think that whole recruitment drive, the way you brand and the way you attract has to sort of change and start from scratch almost. Yeah, D. I I mean, listening to that, I mean, it must resonate yeah. with you as well. These sort of personality types quite interesting, isn't it? And getting new people in, leaders looking yeah, at things differently. Yeah, I think it's really up. important. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to kind of acknowledge the challenges of the registered managers. I mean, I work with quite a few of the um, registered managers and, you know, they are running around like a blue ass fly, basically. You know, they have all sorts of things to think about, compliance, dealing with the stress, emotion, burnout. You know, post-COVID, budgets, complex care needs, adapting to change. The list is, is, you know, is endless, really. And I think it's about, you know, how um, HR employment law, whatever you want to call it, you know, can then step in and, and ease some of that pressure by providing that listening ear, those strategies to kind of support those people who feel that they don't have the time I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it surround, in my opinion, is surrounded in culture. Mm. So unfortunately, some of the cultures and the reputation of these businesses can be perceived as quite poor when that's it's kind of really unfair, really, because they're doing their best. But um, often, as you guys will know as well, um, registers managers' hands are tied. So in terms of budgets, 
you know, often it's the owner who who is the person in charge of, you know, deciding whether they then bring in um, a HR professional to then save the, you know, save the registers manager's time so they can then concentrate on the care in the, in the homes, in health and social, social care. But bringing you in here, Charles, how much of this do you think is down to uh, employee turnover? Because it is quite high, isn't it, in the uh, care sector? Annual turnover in the sector was above 30%. And when you're dealing with that kind of level of turnover, it's really, really hard to keep your head above water. You know, if you have a workforce of 100 people or let's say 1,000 people you across a number of sites, if you're having to recruit 300 new people every year just to stay still, that's a really challenging position to be in. Now, if you can halve that turnover, it makes everyone's life a lot easier, but that is easier said easier said than done. You know, we've talked about pay as being a core driver of retention, but there's a lot of other things that you can do as well. And traditionally in the sector, I think there has been very little focus on things like career progression and uh, training people within the workforce to become leaders in whatever field they they, they want to want to be in. The government's in theory doing some work at the moment around this after the social care white paper they released in 2021 and they released a next steps document a couple of months ago. One of the core things they're trying to build out is a career progression framework for people working in frontline social care. So we can go from, you know, there's there's an amazing stat that the difference, average difference in hourly rate for someone with 10 years of experience in social care versus a new starter is something like 40p. That's not really a very good driver of career progression and development if you as a frontline care professional uh, don't see that pathway mapped out in front of you. So there's a lot we can do again from government, but also from providers in identifying the best talent they've got and supporting them to upskill and develop within their organization and then reward them appropriately for doing so. Yeah, sort of learning from other industries, isn't it? And they're going out there and, and finding what other industries are doing, which brings me on to the D's point. I mean, outsourcing, you talk about saving time and money, I suppose that's mm. what it's about, isn't it? Is uh, saving mm. time to recruit the best people and retain them and saving money in the whole recruitment process and mm. understanding because they're carers, aren't they? They want to care and HR is not obviously their... their, their no, I mean, you know, it, there's so many challenges um, in care. I mean, I could go on forever about the people challenges, you know, that the, the registers managers have to face day in, day out, day out really. And even just managing um, conflict is really difficult because they're running around, they don't have the time. And actually, you know, with strategies and tools, you can deal with that conflict pretty quickly um, and nip it in the bud, really. And I think with technology, this is so big to me. I mean, you know, it's so important within any sector, but particularly care, because of the rotor, um, they don't necessarily have a HR system. So it's not GDPR compliant. Many care homes or um, providers will have lots of files still with all their, you know, their um, people's stuff in, and then the the multiplying things. So they'll have this. They'll have they have multiple areas of um, of keeping their personal data, people's data. So I think um, technology can save them so much time and energy. What is the role of an outsourced HR? How would you work with a care home? A lot of the time, it's like being that listening ear, really, um, and just providing those strategies to be able to give to those people to to manage that, that whatever that challenge is. I mean, many users to outsource all of it. So we might be that main communicator. So a lot of the um, problems in care is communicating and collaboration. 
So we kind of like would enhance that and manage that within the care home when it's one of the main issues of retention that nobody's communicated anything. So it's quite poor generally. Yeah, I think communication, well-being, um, putting that at the forefront and just kind of like leadership. So um, working on strategy, um, you know, all those strategies around retention, motivate everything really. Mm. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned having a strategy. I mean, what, what yeah. would that look like? Would you help the care home to actually devise that strategy or would you do it for them? Yeah, well, it depends. Some people want want um, little input and some people want to understand and learn as they go along. So it depends what input you can have. For, you can have HR professionals, outsourcers, vet the whole HR department, or you can just have a little bit of input. Um, so it depends what you, what that looks like, really. Um, and I think culture is massive. Um, and I think a lot of one of the things I've experienced is that um, care, health and social care organisations, businesses, they want to stay small and they don't want to lose that family feel. But they don't realise that that's OK, but you can still move forward with innovation and technology and strategy. Mm. So it's us kind of coaching those people around that really and helping them understand the importance of strategy and what that incorporates yeah Zemi I'll bring you in there because obviously you you can again sort of pick up on what Dee's been saying but it is about so you've got that legal background employment law background as well as the HR background of the care homes I suppose both of those things think oh my goodness we're here to care and all this other stuff's going on how important is that sort of legal side I suppose we get on the culture we do the well-being talk about well-being and stuff but in terms of the legal side of it and understanding how HR works how would you work with care homes what do you think is what Dee was saying there yeah I really resonate uh with what Dean was saying um in terms of um and it goes back to you know I I I say this so repeatedly but it goes back to leadership mindset it goes back to you know it's rather than being an owner of a care home you need to be a leader of a care home and leaders lead and what I mean by that is there's a difference between bringing out an outsourced consultancy like ourselves and saying, I need a policy for X and we can just whip you up a template. That's fine. But it's actually a different story to live, breathe and actually integrate that policy into everything you do. Um, and rather than it just being there for when there's a fire and you need to put it out, um, but it has to become a way of work life, if you like, if you like. And I think one of the one of the the switches that hopefully I, I s- sort of see it happening now within our clients, but hopefully it happens more industry wide is, is moving away from the, the my, margin mindset, I call it, because I do understand the pressures within the care industry. But we need to start moving towards the opportunity opportunity cost mindset, which is if we invest in this, will it not save us some hassle later on or some cost here? But also, ultimately, it will build, it will create building blocks for the foundation. And I think that's where the employment law framework can really empower the care home, because as employers, you don't need to fear as long as you're following the correct process and policy. But you need to make that policy mean something so that an employee doesn't just feel that, you know, it's just part of a handbook that's sitting on the shelf getting dusty. Mm. Um, But it's actually something that we're going to live and work by together as a team. Mm. so bring in that sort of outside expertise because outsourcing or whatever you want to call it because obviously you know care owners they, they need to know the law but they're not experts in the law and is employment law is it does it change very fast Samir or is it just being keep on top of you know what you should be doing and complying etc to be honest um I, I obviously the last few years is not a great great uh, example of what I'm about to say but employment law doesn't change so much and so dramatically every year um there are little tweaks here and there case law comes in 
I think it's more about best practice that's constantly evolving and changing mm. and marrying that with with the right policy and the right framework and the right legal structure. And I think that there is this myth that, you know, the employees have all the power and we're employers, we can't say anything and we're going to get in trouble and end up at tribunal. But in my experience with the right, uh, you know, going back to Dean's point, the right communication, the right culture, that sets yeah. the tone. And if, if, if a workforce feels they're being led, then they have something to aspire to. So then you have that connectivity, you have a team rather than it's us and them, and you're all moving in the right direction. And then, you know, putting in the changes is, is a lot easier because you're all on the same page. Yeah, I mean, Charles, I mean, that whole best practice that Zamir talked about there, I mean, that's the same, isn't it? Whatever area of the care home we're talking about, you know, whether it's infection control, training, you know, whatever it might be. And here, employment, have a best practice. I suppose learn from other care homes, learn who's doing it well. What are you picking up from what Dee and uh, Zamir are saying, Charles? I, I echo exactly what, what they're saying. I think um, the um, without, without wishing to butter you up too much, but, you know, it's the role of um, organisations like yourselves to help kind of spread some of those best practices across um, uh, across the sector. I think if you compare it to something like the NHS, which has a very strong central brand uh, and a very strong set of um, a very strong identity and a very set of strong set of like central policies for how things best practice should be done. Social care has a bit of a challenge in that it's so disparate and diverse with so many different types of people that it cares for but also so many type, different types of organizations um of loads of different sizes it can be quite hard to spread some of that best practice and if you own or operate or manage uh, a care setting it's not always easy to know <laughs> where to go to find the best source of hmm. knowledge or the best resources and i think there, there is an opportunity to create kind of a, a set about some of these best practices 100 percent yeah, and Dee, back to you then. I mean, do you do that? Do you help your clients understand best practice that maybe you might have seen at another one of your clients? Uh, I mean, how yeah. practical are you in that sort of side of things? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, one of our, um, you know, one of our main objectives is to build real relationships with um, with our clients, and and that's what we that's what we do. Um, and our testimonials, um, you know, shout about that. We are change agents. You know, we are. That's what our experience is. You know, we are communicators. We are. Um, experts in process whatever policies and I think um, the way that we communicate with um, the managers and their teams is um, through those skills that we've got I suppose in a in a very um, you know matter of fact way. Do I mean um, as Amir was saying about best practice and one example I suppose would be having a, lead, a leadership mindset I mean I'm putting you on the yeah. spot here about D here but yeah. Would there be a good example you could give of best practice in general, you know, having an HR function and a strategy? What is what is what does it look like best practice when it comes to HR in a care home? I think um, in terms of competitive advantage, you've got to be at the forefront with technology and, and utilise those tools that, you know, that are on offer with technology that can then incorporate everything, performance mm. management, um, leadership, um, communication, collaboration. Mm. Um, I suppose, I suppose another way of asking the question is like if you when you get a new client and you go in and yeah. you look at how they're doing HR at the moment, yeah, not outsourced it. What 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 are the sort of like common mistakes people make? What oh well, um, I think what I would say is often they're on the wrong contract of employment. Mm. So I find that a lot. So they might be on a zero hours contract when they shouldn't be. So I've done quite a few projects in that in that area. Mm. 
really old policies and procedures or lack of, lots of internal conflict not dealt with, even to the point of just ignoring quite serious misconduct, not following ACAS guidelines in terms of investigations, just lack of any type of communication. So everybody's kind yeah. of really low and demoralised and don't feel valued. When actually that's not the case, but they just don't have that strategy or they don't think the time to do that. So, yeah, it's kind of quite a quite a, a poor, very poor communication kind of environment, really, with lots of conflict. It's quite common. Employment contracts and HR processes always get the lead PLC in most businesses, unfortunately, mm. um, because I guess, you know, they're, they're easily forgotten that, you know, it's filed away somewhere until something goes wrong. Um, and I think that's where kind of businesses, whether they're in care or otherwise, constantly need to look back at what their value proposition was to begin with and how does you know the documents the policies the procedures and you know what's been going on around the business how does that all shape and evolve the documentation that you have in place um but yeah it's often forgotten and i think the place i would and i, I think d will uh, uh, resonate i think the place i always start with clients is We've got to start with an audit and we've got to have this yeah, yeah, yeah. you know whether it's quarterly six monthly or annually but we definitely have to have regular check-ins to see everything's still relevant because that that's crucial what yeah. i find massively missing as well is any business plan so that very rarely there's any type of business plan and if there is it's probably not looked at very regular if at all i think um also i've started seeing a, a movement with you can say the more enlightened entrepreneurs of including people agendas within their business plan, um, mm. which, which which is very encouraging because I think you often don't, I mean, you'll have an operational structural sector, sector within your business plan, but you generally don't give too much focus to, you know, what who are the types of people you want in the business? How do they mm. resonate with the values you want to put throughout the business? What mm. does that look like? There is a very bums on sea attitude within healthcare generally. And, and it's because of the pressures, you know, I, again, I, I don't mean to sort of criticize uh, because yeah. I, I realize there are these very real life pressures there. But it's sometimes very important to just take a reflective step back and say, actually, what type of person do I need here rather than who do I need to fill in the role, if that makes sense. Um, and I think it's just really important to mention as well that not everybody can be a carer. You know, that is that is fact. Yeah, thank you, Dee. Thanks for that. Yeah, Charles, I mean, on, on those points, I mean, in terms of having a plan, having a strategy, and what you were talking about, you know, waking up and looking long, you know, accepting this long-term issue. I mean, would you, because it's about having the time, isn't it? I suppose in it with tech, you can you make that time to do this plan. Anything to add to what Dee and Zamir have been saying there, Charles? I mean, I think um, it's always hard and always requires discipline to be able to take a step back and look holistically at what you're doing, especially especially over the last few years when, you know, people wake up every day and there's a fire and you need to go and put the fire out. Um, it's very hard to, as a, as a leader, as a leadership team, as a manager, whoever, to step back and say, like, is, am I, is, where am I going? Is what I'm doing today contributing to me going in the direction? What can I do to change from that, some of that stuff? I mean, like, we, you know, we, I personally know that I need to spend more time doing that kind of thing myself. So mm -hmm. totally empathize with people running frontline care services who, who, who don't necessarily put that time into strategy, but it is super important. 
Yeah, brilliant. Excellent, guys. Um, I sort of wanted to go on to our third topic here. Um, I know, Zamir, you wanted to sort of lead on this around. We sort of touched on it, really, I suppose, culture, engagement, um, employee well-being. So we're talking things that would help to retain, but also to boost the care homes employer brand here, isn't it? So they will recruit. People want to do it. I mean, we've we've covered a lot in the magazine over the years about how care homes aren't always that good at telling their positive story. You know, they can get a lot of negative press. But, but having a strong employer brand, then when you do work for a care home, you feel recognized, you feel valued, you, you're communicated with, et cetera, the things Dee was talking about. So Zamir, on that point then, how important is, do you think, employee engagement and well-being? We see it in other sectors. Is it becoming more and more important in care homes? So they need to address that. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, within the care sector, and, and this sort of lends itself to the dental uh, industry as well, where we, where we do a lot of work. Traditionally, it, it's almost as if, you know, um, people within that business kind of say, oh, well, we do care we do dental, what more can, you know, what more difference can we bring? Um, and it's a real shame because actually these type of industries have so much to give more than just the obvious services that they're providing. And I think that sort of attitude, again, starts at the top. There is that inability sometimes, I think it's sometimes a lack of awareness more than not wanting to do it. But there's this, this sort of um, hesitancy to really dig into what does this business actually mean? What is the purpose? What are we trying to achieve? And it might be your, your, your net result in terms of action is the same as you know the, the next 20 care homes, but it's the way you're doing it. So for example, Charles is talking about uh, technology and making it more efficient. That, that's a way of, of being, you know, that's, that's a great value to sort of inculcate into the workforce. And, and also, you know, being able to communicate and be transparent with that workforce and say, look, it's okay, things can be scary. We ourselves are a bit uncertain, but we're here, we're going to do it together. I was uh, listening to this uh, podcast the other day and, and uh, they were, they were um, referring to a survey and they, you know, they asked a question, a sort of rhetorical question to the audience. What do you think the most important factor for a worker in today's um, workforce is? And, you know, on the comments, there was things like, you know, money, uh, job satisfaction, you know, all sorts, the, the usual sort of things, being wanted, being loved. And actually, the number one key priority right now is being safe. What does that mean? Safety, uh, you know, not just your health and safety, but also that your your employer actually cares about what you're going through. Um, so your well-being. Uh, so they recognize that they need to be there sometimes as a support, but also the direction as well of where the business is going. So it starts from the beginning. Um, when 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 we talk about employee engagement, it's not just the the sort of soft and fluffy, warm and fuzzy you know, when everything's going right, let's have a quick chat. It's It's got to be a doctrine that's throughout the life cycle. So where you're having um, in recruitment interviews, talking about what values do you bring to this business? This is how we operate. How does that sit with you? You know, give us examples of not just a difficult situation, but a situation where you've had an ethical dilemma or something, you know, pushing the boat a little bit further out, having regular and meaningful appraisals. So not just a scoring system in a corporate manner, of you're right, you got five out of ten, you know, you're not getting your bonus this year. But it's about, you know, the journey. How has your journey been this quarter or this six months or annually? Um, you know, how can we support you? What can we do to make your work journey better? Because I feel there is a massive responsibility from employers everywhere. Where you invite an employee into your home, so to speak, you're now affecting their life, you're affecting their development journey. So you do take that responsibility of not just paying them a fair salary or a fair wage for what they're mm -hmm. doing, 
but also helping them along the way, making leaving them in a better place than when they came in. So I think that's where engagement and well-being is so powerful because if you can translate those values into actions and you know that feeling, that vibe you create in the workforce, you'll definitely get better retention mm. and you'll definitely attract better, better, better mindset or, or not better is the wrong word. You'll attract the right mindsets because that's, I think, a lot of the conflicts that come in workplaces where people don't resonate, they don't fit. And maybe there's a lack of attention given to, is this the right place for me or is this the right place for this person? You know, there's not that servitude, if you know, we're, we're not there to serve each other. We're there to take from each other, you know, not not in such a malicious way, but you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's really, really important to reflect on that point. And how do you how do you know if you've got an engaged workforce? How do you know if you've got your culture right? Is it purely because people aren't leaving? To Charles's point, turnovers lower, people are happier, residents are happier. How can you measure that? And is it something that can change quite quickly? Or is, is that getting that culture change? Is this quite a long, again, a long term strategy? So I'm going to your first point. How, how do you know? Um, I think, yes, those kind of indicators are there. So you have the obvious stuff, you know, is everyone seemingly content and happy? You know, is the business growing? Um, is there less conflict? Is there less turnover? But I think you have to constantly check in. So it's about training and educating your management team who are on the ground to, you know, be able to read those little red flags or little points, being able to let your workforce know that you're it's an open door policy to, you know, in, in the right framework that you can come and tell us, how do you feel the business can be improved? How do you feel the process can be improved? The check-ins, you know, you can do things like surveys. We're big advocates of getting regular profile tests because people's personalities are constantly changing. So it's important that you can sort of understand your coworker. Really important you see where they're coming from um, because it mm -hmm. creates compassion within, within the workforce. How easy it is, um, I think, over a long term, of it, it does take time. You know, I'm not, not going to say it's something you can click your fingers and, and, and you'll just get a great workforce and great culture. But there are very easy steps you can put in. And, and I would call them the human steps, you know, creating a better vibe. So when, when, you know, you're addressing each other, it's with respect, whether it's a difficult situation or a positive situation. Recognition, you know, it doesn't take much to recognize someone's contributions. It might be at a team meeting saying, oh, by the way, this person done a fantastic thing last week for this resident. Round of applause. Something along those lines, having team building uh, time. So, yes, again, time is always a constraint, but if you can't do it every quarter, you do it once a year. Or you, you make an effort to sort of do small gestures that can really get big buy-in, if that makes sense. One of the things I always think and we always discuss is going back and revisiting the core values of the business. Many, you know, often nobody even knows the core values. It's like, well, actually, what are they? So I think I would always go and say, look, you know, let's revisit the core values. So ultimately, they're the driving force between any behaviour. I just hope to come in on this culture piece because it's obviously it's, it's a huge topic. Um, one of the things I keep learning again and again, and probably will keep continuing to learn, is that you know, your your the culture of your organisation is okay. It's theoretically defined by the leaders within the organisation, but it's lived and and cre actually created by everyone within the team and it's ultimately your culture is what happens when when you're not there and how people behave then and one of the fastest ways to lose good people is not deal robustly with people that are being negative influences on your culture and 
again, see, see it again and again, especially in a world where you're already challenged around, as a care organization, you're challenged around your staffing levels or your, or your recruitment. Um, and it's easy to sometimes push down the road, the decision to deal robustly doesn't necessarily always mean exiting, but deal robustly with people that are causing challenges in your organization. Absolutely essential to not just encourage positive culture, as you've been talking about, Samir, by like celebrating success and delivering de- your values, but by also making sure that people that aren't doing those things are not part of your organization. And I think that's when conflict resolution comes in. Um, often people are not aware on how to deal with that conflict. If you have an eye for these things, you can see when when something is brewing or storm, storming, if you like. So there, there is always that sort of keeping an eye on, on red flags or little, little moments where you see something's not quite a right or a myth. But also, interestingly, so we, we use a, um, a profiling tool called DISC. Um, with DISC, so we have certain clients, we do this on a six monthly basis. And it's incredible how people can shift from, for example, being a dominant personality to an influencer within a six month period where, where you never saw it coming. Um, but it's because I guess if, if you know better, you can do better. Or if you know better, you can do differently. Um, so sometimes you'll have, say, a dominant manager who's very good at sort of enforcing, but not so great at the, the, the sort of compassionate side of it. And once that manager knows that, oh, actually I could just tone down slightly, I can still be, um, I can still be sort of setting the benchmarks, but I can also do it in a compassionate way. You suddenly see the influencer side of them coming out. Um, and it's fascinating because people then start to mold themselves to what they actually would like to see rather than just setting on what the default switch is, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you can have um, the chem- chemistry wrong. I'll get Charles in on a second, but you can get the chemistry wrong, I suppose, can't you? You've got too many greens or too many oranges in your care home, and you realise that actually we've got the wrong sort of personality types. We haven't got the right chemistry. Yeah, I mean, like, ultimately, you uh, you build a team based on people with different skills and different approaches, and that diversity is what gets you where you want to go. If you have a team of people that look and behave exactly the same, then um, it, you, don't, you don't get the best out of people. I mean, I think whilst appreciating, respecting that diversity, it comes back to your core values. You know, if you define what the non-negotiables are and how you want to interact with each other and uh, the behaviours that you want to see, you set those in stone and then building on top of that baseline with diverse approaches and opinions on how things are done. I think that I think that's the recipe for how to build a high-performing team. Samir, I'll ask you that question. Who looks after the manager's well-being? Fantastic question because it's it's often it's often the look after look at the person looking after who doesn't get looked after. Um, I think this is where that team connectivity culture comes into place. So if you have a leadership team that's put management and empowered them to look after the workforce, then the leadership has to step in and make sure that the actual management are okay. So I think there's two methods. You can have collaboration within the management unit. So you have things like, for example, 360 performance reviews, but you could have a 360 communication culture where, you know, managers are checking in on each other and there's camaraderie between, between that, that level of the hierarchy. But I think it's absolutely vital for the leadership to step in. So whether that's the owner or the representative, the operations manager, whatever form that might look like, but you, you definitely need that leadership presence because those managers also need to know that you've got their back. Uh, and, and that's a huge but underestimated feeling uh, within, within a, a management workforce. You need to know that the person you're effectively carrying out the values and the vision for 
is definitely behind you and they're providing that that sort of level of safety net where you need them and the owner themselves has to look after their own well-being of course absolutely and it's got it's got to be it's it, it shouldn't be a one-way direction either so it can be the workforce you know ha- have time to care about the owner there should be that level of connectivity now is that always possible at every level probably not it's not always practical because of the size or the distance or the locations but if you have that culture inculcated throughout the hierarchy you're going to have that camaraderie at the end of it so even if it's an informal, you know, how are you doing? I haven't seen you for a while. How's things going, et cetera. Those conversations can make all the difference to someone. You just don't know how you're affecting that person's day. Um, so I think mm. it's creating that mindset throughout the workforce that we are in it together. I think for me, um, in terms of workplace well-being, um, you've got to have the senior management buy-in. And that's where really, you know, people who are outsourced relations will help you with that and understanding how that then be, um, you know, followed through. Do you, do you see what I mean? You've got to have that buy-in from the top. And that means owner and registers manager and management team, not just, you know, um, staff on the on the floor, basically. That's... Yeah, OK, brilliant. OK, just to, just to sum up, really, I'm going to ask you all guys if it's like, you know, people might be listening to this podcast about employment. It's obviously got them thinking if there's sort of, I don't know, one thing they can go away from now and maybe look at straight away to help improve being their recruitment retention. Charles, what would it be? What would you say that people should go and do now? Uh, if, I'm probably going to steal Dee's idea, but if you haven't done so already, make sure your your core values of your organisation are written, are defined, written down, and you understand how you assess against those core values, both in an interview process and also in performance reviews. Thank you. Dee, what would you like to add? Any one piece of advice you'd give people today? Think about how to create an open and inclusive culture. Excellent. Thank you. And Zamir? Reassess, help people develop, and, you know, keep that connectivity right at the forefront um, of everything you do. Well, that's all we have time for on the uh, latest Care Home Management Magazine podcast sponsored by CAS Recruitment. World-class company providing third country recruitment for the Philippines for more than 20 years across multiple sectors, including including healthcare, uh, connecting people for a better tomorrow. Uh, So thank you very much to them and to our panel today. Dee Newton from Craven Consultancy Services, uh, Charles Armitage from Florence and Zamir Nazarali from Simplify ER. Thank you to you guys. Uh, It's been a great listen and we'll be back with some more podcasts over the next few weeks. Thanks for listening.